Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before my guests on today's show scored a pair of Oscar nominations for writing Judas and the Black Messiah, they may have been best known for this scene in a little movie called 22 Jump Street. I don't know, at the end of the day, you just kind of want something that's just a little deeper, really. Yeah, yeah balls deeper. Jinx buy me a Coke. Oh, snap, man, we're still saying the same thing. This is amazing. Carrots, pumpernickels, glow sticks, twins. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today on the show, we have our very first set of comedian twins, the Lucas Brothers. Keith and Kenny Lucas have a fascinating story that started in the Newark projects, includes dropping out of two separate law schools to become a stand-up comedy team, and culminates this month at the Academy Awards, where they are nominated for Best Original Screenplay for co-writing Judas and the Black Messiah. Their deeply conflicted feelings about Hollywood ended up being a big theme of this conversation, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. Oh, And after 106 episodes, I may have finally stumbled upon a name for the ever-evolving segment that ends every episode of the show. So definitely stick around for that as well. But now, here's me with the Lucas Brothers. Well, first of all, I just have to congratulate you guys on the Oscar nominations. It's incredible. It's very exciting. I saw you, you, I think it was on Instagram, you posted that you are the only six comedians before you guys nominated for screenplay nominations. So, uh, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a remarkable history because I'm a student of history and I, you know, I, I love stand-up so much and just, it's, it's crazy that, you know, we're part of something that's, that's, that's never been really done before. So it's crazy. It's not in the same category, but you are. Uh, there's there's also in uh, the adapted screenplay category two previous guests on this show, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and Jenna Friedman ah, for, yeah. for Borat. So at least you don't have to go up against them, but uh, <laughs> but some but some fellow comedians in the mix. Right, right. It's uh, yeah. I mean, this might be the most in one year that so many stand-up comedians have been nominated for. It's 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 kind of remarkable. Very cool. Well, I'm just, I'm such a huge fan of Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, I just, it was really one of my favorite movies of the year, if not my favorite movie. Um, and I, I was just thrilled that it got so many nominations, including for you guys. But let's just start at the beginning. I mean, how did you guys get involved in this movie? How did this happen? I mean, it, we, we have a pretty deep history with uh, Fred Hampton in college. We came across his story in an African-American studies course. And, uh, you know, it always just kind of hit us kind of hard. And so when we, when we got in the entertainment we we came we were just sort of like tinkering around with an idea and then we came across William O'Neill's story and we were like oh man this this could this could work as a film so we went around town pitched the idea and got a bunch of rejections and not always just rejections but they just didn't get the idea didn't think it was very marketable or you know whatever and so we hooked up with Shaka uh while we were doing an FX pilot he was he was directing we were acting in it and we uh you know we kind of hit it off and I wouldn't call that acting. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, we were we were we were do, we were reading lines and trying our best. Shaka was doing his best with our acting ability, but uh, uh, we just we know we became friends and and we felt very comfortable going to him with our idea and we pitched it to him and he fucking dug it and then the rest is history, man. Did, do you think that some of the resistance that you were facing had to do with the fact that you are known as comedians and that this is you know not a a comedic story? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think that, that I, I'm sure there was some apprehension on behalf of, uh, you know, uh, from from other executives because we were comedians and, you know, we 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 were known. And we're not just comedians like we, we're, we're comedians who smoke weed. And, and <laughs> <laughs> should, we, should we trust them with 20 something million dollars? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do we want to do we want to give them the keys? Yeah. When you call uh, your special you know, on drugs, you're, you're kind of exactly, setting yourself exactly. up for that. You're not you're not you're not being subtle. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of apprehension. And rightfully so, 
Uh, and also, this was our first time pitching a movie like this to the industry, so we weren't great at it. Uh, we were we weren't the, the best at pitching. I, it was a comedy of errors, essentially. <laughs> uh, but the, the best the best decision we made was hooking up with Shaka. Man, that was right, 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 right. Yeah, we, he's we great. Met, we, he, I mean, he's 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 one of the best. I think he's one of the best out right now. And you know, we were fortunate enough to just to get that opportunity to work with him and to just to realize like, oh yeah, he's the person that's going to get us over the hump. And uh, yeah, it, it's worked out perfectly. Yeah. I mean, you said you were familiar with Fred Hampton's story for a long time. You have this comedy background, but you also have, you know, you both uh, went to at least started law school. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you feel like that experience, even that, that limited experience uh, informed your ability to, to really dig into the story at all? Oh yeah. I think law school, I mean, as much as I hated law school, it made me uh, <laughs> a much more principled researcher. Uh, I can, I love, I like now I love footnotes because of law school. Law school made me mm-hmm. love footnotes. That's, that, was the, that was the best thing about law school, just the appreciation of the footnote. Footnotes, I mean, that, you get so, so many great stories from footnotes. Sorry to cut you off. <laughs> right, I mean, Mank, Mank got his own movie in 10 Academy right. Award nominations. I wouldn't say he's a footnote, but you know, he's, a, he's a footnote in, in reference to uh, Orson Welles. So it's like, yeah, that kind of like mentality of looking for like those small stories, I think I got from law school. And I would mm-hmm. say that, that that helped us find William O'Neill's story for sure. Yeah, I mean, so that that's sort of the other side of the coin. If you knew about Fred Hampton, then when did you when did you find out about Bill O'Neill and decide that he was going to be such a big part of the story? So we found out about Bill, I think it must have been around 2012, 2013. So, you know, when you learn about Fred Hampton, you 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 learn like some key uh, moments, key beats of the story. You know, the FBI was involved with his assassination, but you don't really know like the details. So we started reading this book, uh, The Assassination of Fred Hampton. I think it was written by Jeffrey Haas. We started reading that around 2012, 2013. And there were a couple pages dedicated to William O'Neill. And his story just, I don't know, we, we read it a few times and it just like sparked intrigue uh, immediately. We just, we just started thinking, wow, this kind of feels like an espionage film, you know what I mean? We started to think about drama when we were thinking about his story. Uh, and then we, we just started, do, try, we tried to do more research, try to find anything we could on him. It wasn't a lot. Uh, a couple articles about him in a newspaper just talking about his death. But then there was a, a transcript that we found of the Eyes of the Prize interview. So that the interview that's featured uh, in the film, we found, we found that transcript, I think, around 2013. And uh, we read that transcript so much. And uh, we were like, yeah, this is the making of a film. This, this is a crime thriller. Uh, just the way he described the story, how he got recruited, how he infiltrated, uh, just the social political context, how he described it during the time and his admiration for Fred Hampton. It was just a lot in there uh, that we felt could work as a film. Yeah, I mean, to, the film's been described um, as radical. And I think to me, what makes it so radical is the fact that it is this compulsively entertaining crime thriller that anyone, whether you're interested in this subject matter or not is going to find, you know, is going to find entertaining. And then through that, you're getting all these ideas in there. So was that something that you guys really thought about? Like, we want to make this appealing to a wide audience? Because you could see there's there could be plenty of versions of the Fred Hampton story that wouldn't be as broadly uh, <laughs> appealing to as, as wide of an audience. Right. I mean, I think we had two intentions. Uh, and I don't want to speak for Shaka, but I've, I've seen him uh, say this. I mean, yeah, we wanted to make a film that people watched. I mean, I think, I think that that's a part of the compromise that you make when you're doing art. This is a business and you want it to reach as many people as possible. But in that intention, there was also an intention to ensure that we properly represented Fred's message so that, uh, the film does work as a sort of didactic, didactic, uh, you know, piece of art where you can learn something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's and a lot of people have been able to see it, you know, especially because it ended up um, on HBO Max, I think, which which, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some mixed feelings about that in terms of it being a a movie that you imagined being in the theaters and then ended up on this streaming service. But I think there is something positive about it and that it it got to probably a lot of people that may not have, you know, seeked it out in the theater otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think HBO Max played a a large role in allowing for people who probably wouldn't have gone to the theater to see it, to watch it. And uh, ultimately, that's a good thing. We want we want a lot of people watching the film uh, by any means necessary. 
Yeah, I was wondering if you guys started hearing from people the morning of the Oscar nominations when it had disappeared from HBO Max. Like, yeah. what happened? <laughs> yeah, no, it was uh, excellent timing on the part of Warner Bros. Yeah, uh, that was weird. I don't know what was happening there. I'm sure they weren't expecting the six nominations. Like, oh, Someone didn't think that through. <laughs> I think it's something they learned in business school. It's like counterintuitive marketing. <laughs> <laughs> it's some, some Harvard business school stuff where they, they take the product away during the height of, uh, uh, of its advertising, so. Yeah, it's true. I, I wonder. Yeah, maybe they didn't expect it to do so well in the at the Oscars. <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it could also be a calculus where it's like, oh, we still have it in theaters. Maybe this Correct. will incentivize people. Right. I think that was probably the bit. idea, but for a lot of people, I'm sure it was like, hey, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just heard about this movie, this movie. Right now. <laughs> but hopefully, like once it comes back on uh, HBO Max, that'll be around a time the awards are taking place. So yeah, it'd be, a, be another good. good opportunity. I think the Academy has a portal where they can watch the movie anyway so we don't have to worry about academy the, the academy members are taking they'll find it they'll find it <laughs> <laughs> the other, you know, obviously huge surprise Oscar morning, probably the thing that got the most attention was the, you know, double nomination for Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya in, in Best Supporting Actor. And, you know, the the joke that morning was kind of like, wait a minute, if they're both, uh, they're in the title <laughs> of the movie and they're both supporting <laughs> actors, then who's the who's the lead of this movie? So now that I have you guys, the writers of the movie, I have to ask you, who's, who's the protagonist of this movie if they're both supporting? Oh. I, I, I say it's a, it's a hero's journey for capitalism. Uh, capital <laughs> capitalism <laughs> wins the day. <laughs> capitalism wins at the end of the day. So I would say capitalism is the lead. Yeah, yeah. It's an. I think it's an ensemble piece, but I think Definitely it's told through the pers- it's told through the perspective of William O'Neill. So he's our main character. The the lead supporting thing is a sort of a, a an artificial distinction created by uh, awards organizations. So you sometimes we superimpose that on how we how we're supposed to do narratives, and it becomes a de facto way we see storytelling. But it's a it's an artifice. Yeah, I mean, Lakeith seemed uh, confused as well uh, about how he ended up in in supporting actor. It all comes down to language. Like these concepts aren't clearly defined, so people, you know, like Kenny said, they they sort of superimpose it on the, they superimpose that language and how we describe watching a film and it's like you know ultimately a nomination is a nomination so like like, like, <laughs> like I, would, I would argue like i was like who framed roger rabbit who's the lead in that movie right like is right. it roger rabbit or is it the guy who framed yeah is it the guy who did the framing like who like is, is the villain the, the institution that's the protagonist i don't know they were all sort of supporting this larger narrative that we were trying to tell. So I, I can see the argument why they are our supporting characters. But if they had nominated Martin Sheen as uh, best lead actor, then <laughs> then you would know there was a problem. Now that would have been a that would have been a big surprise. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, both of them, though, the two the two leads, in my opinion, of the movie uh, are unbelievable. And I mean, you couldn't have asked for two better actors in this movie. Um, starting with Daniel Kaluuya, what were your sort of, um, for when you saw him do it for the first time, what were your first impressions of, of seeing him embody this character? It was at the table read, right? So there was a table read, I think it was in September. It was the first table read of everybody, like everyone was involved. And uh, yeah, uh, Kaluuya, I mean, you know, he came in, he wasn't like, he was low key, wasn't talking much, sort of like in his own, in his own headspace. And uh, so, you know, we, we, we didn't, I didn't know what was about to happen. I was just like, I had a table read. Normally when people go to table reads, you know, you go, you kind of go through the motions just to get a feel for it and you move on with your life. Uh, But on this particular table read, like Kaluuya went to to another level like it was like an alien from outer space I, I, we were watching something that i don't think i've ever it was the greatest i would say it's the greatest table read performance i've ever seen Let, let's, just, <laughs> let's, my, just, let's just say let's just say i felt like i should have like paid to see that like i was like i gotta pay this guy because <laughs> he's going to, he's going above and beyond for us and i'm like he doesn't have to go this hard you already got the right. part you know what i mean right right it wasn't right, an audition right. <laughs> yeah but it felt like he was auditioning uh for his life you know what i mean like whether or not like if he didn't get the part he was gonna get murdered at the end of it like it was it was so brilliant it, it was it was one of the greatest things i've ever seen and I didn't know that I read a story uh, in uh, recently that like a million dollars was on the line in terms of increasing production for for that a table read so like the stakes uh, were even or even higher like I didn't even know all this I just <laughs> and I don't think Kalu, I don't think Kaluuya knew either uh, yeah. but he was just giving he it delivered. his all 
and he delivered it. I mean, it was it was otherworldly. And I, and, I, and after that table read, I was like, oh yeah, he's this this is going to be something that's going to shock the world uh, because it, it was remarkable. It, it was like it was like Fred Hampton was in the room. It was it was utterly remarkable. The scene in the movie, the the really big, you know, powerful speech that he gives is one of the most, you know, sort of chilling, incredible acting performances that I've ever seen. So what about that when you saw it then on film? I don't know if you were on set um, yeah, yeah. for that, but but what we was had, your, had, what was that like? <laughs> we, we, had the, we were fortunate enough to be on set. Fortune, yeah, we had the great fortune of being on set to uh, witness that scene. And uh, yeah, it, it blew my mind, man. Like I was there and, and you just hear the, the the background actors and, and he's he's delivering his lines and but it doesn't feel like he's acting it feels like we're really caught up and swept up into the moment like i mean i got i got chills and i was just like clapping afterwards I've, I, right, I, i'm right, like right. this is you know I'm, I've, I've seen this before i've acted in film before this is this isn't anything new to me but it felt so again i, I wouldn't call different. what we've done acting. <laughs> 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 you, you use that term so, uh, okay, so. Yeah, you're right you're right i apologize uh, but I, I, i'm i'm used to the to the to the, yeah, the yeah, atmosphere yeah, yeah. The atmosphere. Right. I'm familiar with it. Right, right. Uh, the the only other time I've seen acting like that, honestly, uh, was oh, we got to see Will Smith during Bad Boys, and he he goes to a like I, it, they just go to another level, and they just embody the spirit of the role, and they just turns into something totally different. It was almost like it felt like I was at the what could, maybe like the best version of a stand up show from from a civil rights preacher felt like we were in the 60s and we were listening to Fred Hampton's speech in terms of capturing his ability to capture the right, crowd right, and just right, change right, the, right, the, the right. energy in the room yeah that, I mean that was the energy that we were playing with and it was it was overwhelming and he gave and he gave the same he gave the same level of energy to each take like he never like changed his inflection or you never got the sense that he was tired or that, how many times you know, did he, he have to do that that speech? We, I mean, it was multiple, multiple takes. I mean, because you know we had to a, get. It was all day, right? I mean, that was right. A it, was, day it was shoot. a, it was a, it was a long That's shoot insane. because there was a, so much coverage. I mean, it was such a complex scene. You have, you got to get Deb, you got to get Lakeith, you got to get Jesse, you got to get all Fred, you got to get the background actor. So like, there's a, there was a, such a complex scene, and it was, it was a tough one. But you know, you can feel the energy just by watching it. So imagine being there and sitting there and and feeling it. It, it was just like. It, it was, and then after, you know, after the, especially after the first one, he got a standing ovation. And it was like, people were just like, oh, we, we know what we're, like, we know that we're, we're experiencing something that's, that's going to be remembered throughout time. It was, it was remarkable. It's not a, it's not a question of violence or nonviolence. It's a question of resistance to fascism or non-existence within fascism. <laughs> You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. So let's talk about Lakeith a little bit too. And that character of Bill O'Neill is, you know, I would say one of the more complex protagonists in a film ever. Right. And just right. sort of understanding where he's coming from and, and just why he did what he did, which is, you know, something that you guys had to think about a lot, I'm sure, writing it. So what, how do you think about him as a, as a real person, Bill O'Neill? I, I, you know, I think about, I, I, I'm so obsessed with uh, 70s cinema and you think about uh, protagonists and Taxi Driver, uh, you think about the protagonists of The Conformist. They're these guys who are, you know, you know wrapped up into this sort of uh, system that's completely oppressive and they feel like they have no out. They feel like they have no sort of freedom to make their own choices and they're just sort of like trapped. Uh, and I felt like when I read about William O'Neill, I was getting I was getting those vibes. I really wanted to like, uh, I wanted it to feel like it was an existential for him. Like he's struggling with his identity. He's, he's struggling with poverty. He's struggling against this sort of, he's struggling with this false scene deal that he made with the FBI to take down someone who's just great. And I feel like uh, Lakeith, man, like that guy can act, man. He, he... <laughs> He is a 
phenomenal. Just uh, Pacino, De Niro, like those guys. He's on he's on that level, and and he he captured the the the, the feelings of angst that I, I that I felt was going to make this movie different from everything else that we've seen before. We're not dealing with the traditional you know civil rights hero. We're dealing with someone who people despise, but we're giving him an arc, and we're saying this guy matters too. Like he he existed just as much as Fred, and he was manipulated by forces bigger than him, just like Fred. Obviously, Fred made a much larger sacrifice, but uh, I don't think you can ignore his story. Right, right. I mean, I feel like the juxtaposition between the two just makes for a very, very powerful storytelling. You know, I think you better understand Fred by understanding Will. You better understand Fred's uh, willingness to die for his beliefs by seeing a person who was unwilling to die for his beliefs. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and I think it's that juxtaposition that, that makes the story really, really compelling. Uh, and Lakeith, I mean, he, he, I mean, Kenny said, or he already said a lot of it, but just like his, his nuance as an actor, just like sometimes he'll say so much without saying anything at all. Just using, using his eyes or a little, a little like glance over to the side says so much about a character by not saying anything at all. And that's just a testament to his ability to, to capture uh, capture what we were doing with the things, but just through facial expressions. I mean, he's, he's a remarkable actor. Um, and him and Kaluuya together, I mean, it's like you're getting two of the best actors of the generation sharing the screen. I mean, it, it, it was just such a moment being able to watch them together. Yeah, Lakeith is someone who's also done, you know, comedy and drama and does both so well. Um, mm-hmm. Were there moments in the script where you did try to kind of sneak a little bit of, of comedy in or or moments of, of levity or or is that was that just not even sort of part of what you were trying to do? Well, you know, Burson and King, they, and Shaka, you know, they also yeah, come Will from... Yeah, Will Burson was, was your uh, co-writer, yeah. He was a co-writer, and uh, Shaka King also, they also come from a comedy background as well. Uh, so I, there is a lot of dry wit throughout the throughout the uh, the film, and I, Lakeith had to improvise uh, that scene when he's, he's speaking to uh, uh, George Sams. Just that reaction to Sams, which was kind of comedic. I know people laughed in the theater, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think that that I think that that was improvised, and and, and then we we had Jermaine Fowler and we had right. Morel, and they were not they were playing serious roles. But it, to me, it's always funny when you see uh, great comedic actors do something that's a little bit different. I think I think it's and, and, Je- and Jesse Plemons has has uh, has has performed in a comedic space as well. So there was just a lot of comedic, uh, just a lot of comedic aspects to the film from all the writers dabbling in comedy to a lot of the performers coming from a comedic background. Uh, and so like, again, it's very dark and very, very, very dark wit. I think throughout the film, I find myself laughing at moments when you pr- I probably shouldn't laugh, but what, maybe like what? I'm a com- <laughs> can you think of a moment that made you laugh that? Yeah. So there's uh when, so when, uh, Hoover is talking to Plemons or Roy Mitchell, and they do a, a cut, they do a flashback to George Sam's laughing. You know, they, they show him again, like, you remember George Sam's, and they flash back to George Sam's and he's laughing. I laugh at that all the time. Or, <laughs> I, I don't know why I, I think that that's funny. I like, it I just like makes me scene, laugh. I like the scene where they're like, when it's Jesse and, and uh, Hoover, Hoover, Mitchell, and uh, the other character, and and they're just like going back and forth about his daughter. I mean, I always like find that that like that's such an insane conversation to have. Right. It's not that's like very laugh dark. out loud funny, yeah. but it's so it's to me I, I find it humorous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the uh, we're we're talking, you know, now a few weeks before the the Oscars. Um, do you guys know how it's going to work yet in terms of like? Because I know there's sort of like this no Zoom uh, rule that went yeah, out. Yeah. And um, are you are you planning on being there in person, or do you know how it's going to work? So there was a meeting, I think yesterday actually, with all the producers, and they were basically trying to dis- describe what it's going to be like. And I think that it's it's going to be somewhat outdoors and somewhat indoors, limited capacity at this place at Union Station, which is uh, downtown L.A. And uh, it's like we're going to be rotating. So because you can't you can only have a certain number of people indoors at a certain time. So I think it might be capped at like 100. I could be wrong. But whatever that number is, that's going to be inside. And then you're going to have there's going to be two outdoor areas and we're going to be rotating throughout the night. And uh, they encourage everyone who lives in the States to they want everyone to be there who have who, been nominated. Uh, but they're, they're setting up satellite uh, satellite shows for people in other countries if they can't uh, make it to, to, to L.A. 
like is Daniel going to be in uh, in London or do you know is he? That's a great question. Uh, that's well, a great he's question. In, he's, in, he's in New York now, right? He's, okay. doing, he's in New York now. Oh, yeah, because he's doing SNL. So, uh, right. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I think he's going to be there. I think he's going to be there. That's cool, yeah. That's wild. I mean, to have your, your first uh, Oscar experience be this very strange Oscars is, is unusual. I think, yeah, I mean, it, it makes it more iconic, I think. I think right. it makes it more iconic. So the Lucas brothers do everything together. But not too long ago, they almost split up as a comedy duo. We get into that and a lot more coming up next. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, the Lucas Brothers are not the only Oscar-nominated comedians we've had on this show. There are incredible conversations in the Last Laugh archive with Sasha Baron Cohen and former Daily Show producer Jenna Friedman, who are both nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay this year for writing Borat subsequent movie film. By subscribing to the Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to the Lucas Brothers. So I do want to talk about uh, about your comedy because this is a, a comedy podcast. Um, and to just really go back to the beginning of that, how did you, when did you start doing stand-up and specifically this idea of doing stand-up together, which is unusual uh, <laughs> to have, <laughs> you know, two twins on stage together, kind of um, working off of each other, finishing each other's sentences. Um, I think you have a very unique style. When did that start? We started doing stand-up in 2010. Well, we our first gig was 2009. Mm-hmm. At mm-hmm, Eastville, mm-hmm. Eastville Comedy Club. This was Eastville in Manhattan before we went to Brooklyn. So we were, we did a quick five minute, I mean two minute spot uh, for at this open mic, and it was uh, we had like four people in the audience, and uh, we it was bad, man. It was uh, mm-hmm. some some of the worst comedy. I wouldn't even want to call it. Comedy. Yeah, you wouldn't classify that as comedy. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, it was, <laughs> we we didn't we didn't really have a sense of style or a sense of what we wanted to say or how we wanted to say it. It was just, it was chaos. And, uh, (laughs) but it was, but it, but it was exhilarating. It was like, you know, you step, you step on stage that first time and, and it it was unlike any feeling I've ever felt ever. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where like, I knew we weren't good, but I, I knew that it was something that I loved. And that I that it was something that I was going to commit myself to. Yeah. So uh, even though it didn't go well, there was something about it that kept you coming back. Right. Right. You know, you you can't you, you I mean you can't stop thinking about it. You know, it's uh, I don't want to say it's like a drug, but it, it's certainly like an addiction that you get just being on stage and feeling that energy and connecting with people and hopefully getting laughs. I mean, yeah, it's, it's unlike any feeling in the world. Holding that microphone in your hand, like right, right, yes. right. Right, it's and nuts. then we get to do it, and we get to do it together, right? So it's like it's 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 an it's an otherworldly experience. I'm on stage with another person, trying to get these people to laugh, but also trying to get my brother to laugh. And you know, we have to make sure that we're in sync and that you know we're we're we're. It's like a dance with us, but it's also a dance with the audience, and it's it's uh it's it's always 
for me, it's always like a beautiful experience to go through. Was there a, a moment or a show that it felt like it clicked for the first time, the way that you were able to work together on stage? Hmm. I think I think the show that made me realize we had a decent act was uh, 2019 Montreal. That was the show. We <laughs> that's did pretty with, recently. We did with, I know. I mean, that's, I was I was ready. Like, I, 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 in my 2019. Mind, 2019. Like I was like that's when I was like, all right, we it's getting better. Like it was. Uh, yeah, we were just on fire, man. Like that, the audience was just like with us. It was a large show. Like how many people? Five thousand, maybe that many people. Wait, what are you talking about? You're talking about the the gala the, the gala yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, 3, it's very recent at uh, three thousand. Very recent. It's like we we had this right before COVID. You know, we were going to the cellar every night. You know, we were going, we were doing, you know, three shows a night and just like just crushing. You know, it was just like you know, really, really crushing and really like, um, but not like overthinking. You know, just it, it almost felt like I don't want to say second nature, but it just felt like I, I normally when I get on stage, I just I overthink. I, I think, I think, I think, I think way too much. But right before COVID, when we were just at the cellar that week it, i think that that was when i was like oh yeah we're st- we're starting to piece it together we're starting right. to figure and, this out and we we hosted a show for rami rami yusuf it was rami mike babiglia uh, a bunch of uh, uh dave dave Dave, Dave, was, Dave there. was there. It was a bunch of just like heavy hitters, and I was like, "Damn, I, I love this shit!" Like, I, I, I was like, "I can do anything now. Like, I can host if I wanted to." I used to have an apprehensive about hosting because our style was so laid back. I was like, well, "Can we maintain the energy for an hour? Like, can we do it?" But when we did it with that show. I was like, I, I, "I'm getting. Well, we're getting to a point where I'm like, I feel real comfortable with this. Right, real right. We needed we needed to break free from the you know the the laid back." Uh, that that style, which I think, you know, was something that we gravitated toward because we felt like it would be, I don't know, I guess it would be easier to present our ideas. But I think once we started speaking like we normally speak, uh, it, it, it's made it's made stand up much more fun for me. Not you feel like fine. you were you feel like you were almost doing like characters on stage before that? Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It was it yeah. was character work. It felt it felt almost like it was like Hannibal Light. Like I was like, <laughs> I saw Hannibal. I was like, I kinda, yeah. I, he's he's cool, laid back. I kind of want to be like that. But it's like was he someone who you uh, who you looked up to or or oh, tried yeah. to emulate? Oh, he was a he oh, was yeah. a huge influence. Hannibal I mean, Burris. We were we were doing stand up one way in Jersey. Awful, terrible, terrible stand up. And uh, we 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 got to New York and went to Brooklyn and it was 2010 right 2010 October we went to to Brooklyn I mean went to Brooklyn for the first time and went to the Nitten Factory and we were like holy shit like this is this is the new stand up this is like we've we've evolved beyond Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and this is like the this is the new this is the new revolution of of, of black comedy and you, you see Hannibal for the first time and you, you instantly have, I instantly had that thought and we knew we needed to we need we knew we needed to be in Brooklyn if we wanted to evolve as stand-up comedians because that's that that that's where everything was happening I mean Hannibal was there you know Glover was there Kat Barnett was there Eric Andre was there Che was there like Phoebe Robinson it was just so many eclectic different kinds of voices all in Brooklyn. And we, we knew, we knew immediately we needed to be there. So you, you know, you said you, you felt like you were just sort of breaking through in, you know, 2019 before COVID you had your special um, that we mentioned on drugs, you know, came out a couple years before that. Right. So how do you, how do you feel about that special now? I mean, do you, are you, are you, you, I I, I feel like it's inauthentic. I mean, I'm happy. I, I think it was a step in the right direction. You know, I feel like if it wasn't for on drugs, I don't think we do the, a lot of shit happened as a result of it and it was necessary. And I think it was a good, uh, you know, uh, step forward, but I don't think it's our most authentic voice. I don't think uh, I don't think we're our most comfortable. And we thought we were gonna get shot. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately enough, he didn't kill us. No. Uh-huh. He just wanted a selfie. That's all he wanted. That's, just wanted to take a selfie. Saw us in Twenty Two Jump Street like this. Asked for a picture. He's actually a pretty cool cop. Pretty cool cop. Pretty cool. <laughs> so we took the picture with him because he had a gun. Snapped it, and then he uh, flew away on his horse. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> As he's flying away, we had an epiphany. Mm-hmm. You see, we realized how to solve the problem of police brutality. You just got to give every black dude a two to five minute cameo in a movie with Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. <laughs> or Seth Rogen. Or Seth, he works too. He works. <laughs> and it worked. 
Because black lives matter. They do. They matter. They fucking matter. They They fucking matter. But in America, black cameos matter a little bit more. (laughs) We were going through a very weird time in our relationship during that period, too. And you like we weren't really like talking. We were we were kind of arguing. We were on the brink of breaking up. A lot of it was a lot of it. There was was a lot of tension between the Lucas Brooks Uh, (laughs) uh, between 2016 and 2018. I mean, we were just like we just I, I just think we had different like goals, I guess. I mean, what, I was kind what, of ambivalent about How would you describe my, that? After 22, like, after 22 Jump Street, like, things got a little weird, you know, because you get a little bit of fame, and it, it kind of threw us off our initially stated goals, which was, like, we want to be the best standards that we can be, and and we want, well, yeah, we just want to be the best standards that we can be. But once you get a little bit of fame, it's like, I don't know, for, for me at least, it pushed me away from that. Uh, because, like, you can't observe anymore. You can, I, I didn't know how to, like, before as a, a comedian, when no one knows who you are, you sort of, you can, you can exist on the margins, you can observe and you can report and you can sort of, but then once you get a little bit of fame, that, st- that starts to, you start to lose a l- little bit of your privacy and I don't know, I wasn't going out as much and I was, I kind of became a bit more like, I don't know, in my own head. And I, I think it fucked up my stand up and it fucked oh, yeah. up my approach to stand up and it fucked up, it fucked up my, my passion for stand up. But I think that, you know, going through that, being able to like confront a couple of the demons that I needed to confront, I, I, I actually grew as a stand up comedian. You know what I mean? Cause when we, after we rejected Hollywood and, you know, our left Hollywood and got back to New York, it was like we, we were completely focused on our stand up. So, but I think you need to go through like obstacles to grow. Yeah. That Hollywood phase was just. It's just wild. Kenny, did you feel like you were embracing the Hollywood uh, side a little more? No, I mean, the reality of the situation is Hollywood for me was always sort of a means to an end. Like I, I, I wanted to use Hollywood as a way to, you know, get better gigs and, and to, you know, secure my secure my spots in theaters and stuff like that. Hollywood was a mechanism to advance my stand up. But uh, I you know. But when when I got 20, when we uh, when we secured 22 and it came out and it was successful and we got all that fame and all that shit like that, like, yeah, it, it, it oh, yeah, you get attracted to it and you start to start. You start to think that, that that's who you are, that you're this celebrity and you're you know you might be better than people or you, you deserve shit and you start to lose yourself real quick and i think going to hollywood and being around it made me realize how much i didn't like it and how much i was like that's just uh that's just not my style i got into stand up for a reason i love film i don't really like i don't really like all of the other stuff i feel like uh for me that shit just gets ugly especially like with drugs and alcohol like my body's not built for it and i'm like susceptible to that shit and in hollywood it's just sort of a, a part of the culture so you can easily lose yourself in all that shit. And I, I I had to do some like deep soul searching to pull myself back from the ledge. It was it was ugly, man. It was it was ugly. It's it's kind of wild to hear you guys talk about even the idea of breaking up um, because you, you know, have done everything together for so long and you're so, you know, uh, thought of as this as a team. Do you ever feel like doing everything together um you know, risks losing any of your individuality? I mean, yes and no. I I feel like what's crazy is that, like, despite being known as a twin and being in such a, you know, a a seemingly codependent relationship, I I do feel like... I, I do have a lot of individuality. Like, I think like when you do get to know us, uh, you realize, oh, yeah, that that's Keith and that's Kenny. I think, uh, but I, I, you just got to spend time with us and you'll notice that there are some differences between us and that we do have our own individual tastes and uh, we have our own individual lives. I mean, we co-mingle, we work together, we do a lot of things together, but I, I think now there is a, a healthy space between us and, and that we're not as... Uh, not as codependent as we used to be. Uh, you say that, and I'm literally right above you uh, in our apartment. <laughs> <laughs> literally, just right above. Do you guys live right above? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. One floor we, apart. We, we we do live together, but we have separate rooms and separate bathrooms. Oh, okay, so, well, that's good. You know? <laughs> I did hear you share <laughs> a therapist. So, uh... Yeah, yeah, we, we, did, yeah. we, did, we did share a therapist, but we eventually got our own. But oh, yeah, that's probably year, healthy. We shared a therapist. <laughs> It was it was weird. He would he would go to the therapist, and then I would I would go an hour later, oh, okay. and we'd walk out. Right. And I'm like, this is kind of this is not how it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> 
given that you said you are maybe not as thrilled with your last or your your first you know hour special, have you thought about what you would want to do for your next hour special? Every day, yeah. uh, every day, yeah. I, we try to think, we think about it, we talk about it, we're trying to like conceptualize it, and you know, every day, you know, we, we're thinking about it, but you know, it's we don't want it. We want to take a different approach that we took from the last one, where it was like we're doing a collection of different jokes, and then we kind of put it all together, try to find some theme, and then we then we record it. I think this time around, we want to make sure our themes are clear. We want to make sure our thesis is clear. And when we just what we're I, for me at least, I'm I'm seeking clarity this time. I want to make sure. I mean, obviously, you know, with stand up, it's going to be messy, and you're going to be grappling with different ideas. But I just want to have a at least clear a clearer intention with this one. And so it's it's required me to like do a lot of research, do some soul searching and to try to figure out like what what approach out we want to take with our next one. Yeah, I don't want to speak mean, for you, I, Kenny. No, 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 it's the same thing. Like we I w- it's been a deep dive. Like we went down to Berkeley, we went we've gone down to just different comedy spots just to like understand the nature of comedy. I mean, listening to the greats, uh writing every day and uh hitting the cellar. We got to work with Babiglia on the road. Uh just like we're just trying to do different things to prepare ourselves to, for it. We want to tell one piece. Like we wanted to we wanted to feel uh like a piece, like a feature, like a like a, a big film. We don't we don't want to like make it seem like a loose collection of ideas. So I think for our next for our next special, we're gonna really like uh, hone in on the themes and the structure and the. Do you know uh, what that what line. that story is? I mean, that that is something that uh, Mike Birbiglia is is known for. Like you said, like he really does. You know, he's like a, a storyteller. He tells his his shows are are one big piece, even if there are different bits along the way. Do you know what the big theme or or story that you want to focus on is yeah i think it's i think it's uh it's about it's our relationship uh as forged in trauma and how we're dealing with that trauma in our in different phases of our lives so we start in newark and we we go to you know law school and then we're in hollywood and then we're back to brooklyn so it's just like our journey with our our codependency i think that that's and our our journey with drugs and alcohol i think i think that would be the, the the big idea but obviously we're going to tell little stories about our, from our child. Codependency is a pretty good title. <laughs> pretty good title. It's a good title. I like codependency, but uh, yeah, that, that's what we're, we're planning. That's cool. You said you kind of, you moved away from Hollywood, you moved back to New York, but you have this, you know, this movie that has all these Oscar nominations. Now you have at least three that I've seen major film projects in the works. So can we talk a little bit about those? I mean, and how you're thinking about them, you know, in the in relation to your feelings about that whole system. What's crazy is, man, we've been we were in Hollywood and in our opinion, uh, so between we left New York in 2015, right after our sketch show got canceled. Big uh, rest in peace, Friends of the People. But we left <laughs> right after we, we, we escaped from New York after Friends of the People uh, got canceled. And we we're like, let's go to Cal, let's go to Hollywood. And we're in that in that time, we met Erica. We met uh, we know we were, we were homies with Lord and Miller and Will. And we had known Judd since 2012. So we go to Hollywood thinking one of these movies are going to are we're, we'll figure some shit out. And so we're we're auditioning, we're pitching and things are just going like it's not going very well in that in that time. We're, we're pitching Judas, too. So we're doing all this shit. And then by 2018, I think we finally closed the Judd deal. And this is a movie with Judd Apatow that's semi autobiographical. Is that right. the, the gist? So we've been we've been working on that. We've been working on the Judd film since 2013, 2014, just trying to figure out, okay, what's what's what story can we tell to sort of turn into a, a vehicle for, for, for Judd to produce and potentially direct? And it's a process with Judd. You know, you, you have an idea, you break the story down, you further break the story down, then you take a shot at writing the script, and then you write multiple other drafts of the script, and it's, like, lengthy. But he also, like, he's pushing us to, like, probe a little deeper and go deeper and deeper, try to get to that messy part and talk about the, the dark stuff. So like that was a challenge in and of itself. But while we're working on that script, we're trying to figure out Judas. We're working with uh, Lord and Miller to try to figure out a, uh, a film idea. And, you know, we're, we're working with uh, Seth MacFarlane trying to figure out ideas. So it's like... That's a lot to do know, at you, once. Yeah, you're, you're, just, you're just trying to make something happen, you know? 
but none of, but none of it was like it, it was all nebulous like we had we hadn't really secured any of the deals we hadn't gone to the studios to pitch the ideas it was just like development 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 and we were just like right whatever we're not really getting paid but that's not why we're here we're here to fucking become as we're, we're our goal going to hollywood was to be, was to become better storytellers like we wanted to we wanted to be in the machine learn how they learn how they make their stories so that we can adopt tactics and apply it to a you know a more independent way of telling stories so we felt it was necessary necessary for us to learn the ins and outs of Hollywood. It almost broke us, but it was definitely worth the education but then the, i think I, re, I think around 2019 that's when kevin died and that's when like we were like fuck hollywood like we were like man that's we, kevin, barnett. Not, kevin barnett uh rest in peace homie um he died he he moved from brooklyn to hollywood and that shit just sort of like i don't know man i feel like his death really just sort of illuminated a lot for me and i just i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't uh balance my uh love of uh, I, it was it, it came down to like do I value my health or do I value my career like w- what's more important and I decided not to put my career first anymore where I'm just like drinking to fucking deal with certain shit or doing drugs to deal with certain shit so I was like I'm just gonna retreat back to home and try to find myself right right so we, we, we left Hollywood and went back to Brooklyn and just like we were like yeah, we gotta we gotta get a hold of this shit because you know this Hollywood shit can kill you if you don't you know take a step back and like really really assess assess shit. So we went back to Brooklyn and just started doing a lot of stand up and kind of took a break from took a break from Hollywood, a brief break, but a break nonetheless. Yeah, and then and then the movie comes out and then deals started getting closed and then we get <laughs> six Academy Award nominations. I'm like, fuck, just when you think you're out, back in. I was like, I'm done. I'm over this. I'm, I'm, it's over. And then, like, no. Yeah, no, you now. can't stop now. No, right, now it's right, impossible. Right. Now it's like we're, we're in it. Do you know which of those projects is sort of like the furthest along or the next one that you're that's going to actually happen? I mean, scripts are done. Not done, but scripts are the first drafts are done for all of them. But, you know, I think some drafts are further along than other drafts. I'm not going to say which, but I feel like they're all in like. A good shape, I would say. They're all in good shape. It'll be interesting to see, you know, doing the movie with Judd. It sounds like, you know, it's a sim- potentially a similar story to the special that you want to do. So how do you think about that in terms of where different things go in, in stand-up versus, you know, the movie that's also about yourselves? I think they can work in conjunction only because, you know, with our stand-up, it's, uh, you know, a little bit more, you're not dealing with the, the traditional studio comedy beats. You can you can be a little bit more, I mean, vulgar and a little bit more, uh, a little bit more personal. I think, I think they, uh, and our, our, the film is dealing with our relationship with our father. That's like the big crux of the film, and I think the stand-up is going to be a little bit more, more broad. Yeah, yeah. definitely a little more comprehensive. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're, they'll be complementary. I, I, I think that they're going to they're going to work uh, they're going to work well in conjunction with one another, uh, and I think they're going to complement one another. So, have you had to think about who you would want to play your father? <laughs> we've we've had some preliminary discussions. I mean, you know, obviously you're thinking big. Uh, it'll be it'll, it'll be ideal if you can get Denzel, but it's like you know, when, when the <laughs> last was, time Denzel that was the first night and name that came to my mind too. So. Of course, you want you want to go big, but then I'm like, do I want to act against the greatest actor of all time? Like, you know, <laughs> based on my limitations, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe somebody will find it, you know, humorous, you know. But Denzel is obviously, but 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 the second actor, we're like more Denzel, less. <laughs> but it's our story, man. You know, we slowly, slowly, the movie becomes about him. Well, he is a better actor, so I, I, I understand. <laughs> so uh, this podcast is called "The Last Laugh." I want to end on the first laugh, and uh, so what I mean is, can can each of you talk about the first comedian or piece of comedy that you really remember making you laugh really hard? You know, as a kid or or, or growing up, what was the thing that that really sticks out in your memory? In my memory, the first my thought was I, we were in Grandma Alice's place in the Garden Spires, and she was watching she was watching Richard Pryor, and I laughed at Richard Pryor. Was, I don't think I, I don't think I understood that as much as I I was too young. For, I mean, I, yeah, Richard Pryor for sure, but I I think Chris Rock's "Bring the Pain." That's what that's the one I I can remember. Just like it's laughing like over and over. Like, bring the pain for sure. Yeah, yeah. Bring the pain. Bring I, I watch "Bring the Pain" religiously. Like, I was I it bigger and black. Was it bigger and black or "Bring the Pain"? It was the first one. Bring the pain. That, that's "Bring the Pain," right? 
Yeah, bigger and black for the second. And then, can you guys remember the first joke that you told on stage that really worked or really got a really got a big laugh? The shroom joke. Yeah, shroom it, it was shrooms, some yeah. version of the shroom joke. Uh, it was it, it was weed before. We, it was weed, and it was at the Stress Factory. It was some gra- we were doing this graduation show, and uh, we were bombing. It wasn't a bomb bomb, but it was like bad comedy. <laughs> yes, it was. And it, yeah, was it was a bomb. Bad. It was a terrible <laughs> comedy, and uh, yeah. Kenny said something, and it 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 it, uh, it got a bit of a chuckle, and we sort of we sort of stuck with it, and it evolved into the to the the shrooms joke that we continue continue to do. We, <laughs> it needs to get out of our set. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look, look, Seinfeld's still doing material from the '80s, man. <laughs> <laughs> and he's better than you are, so <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. And then we can end on this. What's the what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? Just something that you've seen recently that you thought was was funny. Could be uh, stand up <laughs> or something on TV or just uh, on the I internet. Just, uh, anything that I just watched Bad Trip. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's it's <laughs> all of it's funny. Yeah, I, I really love Bad Trip. It, it well, had not- me laughing throughout. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great. Yeah, I watched. Uh, I was. I've been listening to Pryor, and uh, let's see. I I'm gonna look at my Spotify. See what the see what the last thing I listened to. It was Richard Pryor. Wino dealing with Dracula. That was, mm. That's the bit I watched. That's a classic. Uh, <laughs> great. That's a classic. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, this was this was really funny and fascinating, and uh, it's great to meet you and hear your story. Um, and again, congrats on the on the nominations it's it's incredible oh thank you man this is uh this is awesome this is a great conversation man i I really really had a good time great i appreciate it sorry if i got too deep man (laughs) no that was good i like deep i like deep (laughs) oh man a huge thank you to keith and kenny lucas for that very deep conversation they are just very cool and i'm honestly honored that they let me hang out with them for an hour Judas and the Black Messiah is currently playing in theaters, if that's an option for you. And with any luck, it will be back on HBO Max very soon. I can't vote for the Oscars, but if I could, they definitely have my vote. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.